If you have your Bible with you, open it to the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. We'll be reading there. If you don't have it, that's okay. It will be on the screen. Uh, I am going to read all of those two chapters at the front end. So just kind of prepare yourself. We're going we're gonna to see it all because it's really helpful sometimes to see it all in one glance and, and not in uh, piecemeal. So, um, uh, so be ready for that. But we'll be reading from the New International Version, uh, Revelation 21 and 22. Um, this is the last uh, in our series, the revelation of Jesus Christ, worship and witness in a winner-takes-all world. And um, the subtitle for this message is actually On Earth As It Is In Heaven, which, as we'll talk about in days to come, that's actually our theme for the whole year, but that actually is uh, uh, right here in our text going to be our theme for this message as well, On Earth As It Is In Heaven. And so if you would join me in reading Revelation 21... Uh, beginning in verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it was high, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. 
The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper and the second sapphire and the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon or to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing the twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more light, or, I'm sorry, no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These are the words, or these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophet, sent his angel to show his servant the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard, uh, had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you to give you this, uh, my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come and let all who, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. 
And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to see, to hear, to understand by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. To say that the book of Revelation has a good ending is an understatement. It is glorious, but it is also surprising. Given all the plagues, wrath, and idolatry that fills the middle of this book, it might not be the expected ending. It's surprising because it keeps speaking of the judgment of the nations, but it ends with the healing of the nations. It's surprising because in the glorious city, no one who is cowardly, unbelieving, vile, a murderer, sexually immoral, or who practices magic arts, an idolater or a liar will be there, neither anyone who is impure or does anything shameful or deceitful, which just eliminated all of us. And yet this city is filled with people. God's grace gets the last word. This ending is also surprising to us 21st century Christians whose description of heaven, you know, where we go when we die, uh, is filled from this chapter. How many times have you heard that You know, heaven has streets of gold. But that's surely not what the text says. It's the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven to earth that has streets of gold. Whatever those might be. What is this new Jerusalem? When will it come down out of heaven? How will it come down out of heaven? Well, to understand what's said about the New Jerusalem, we must take a a, a brief step back from the New Jerusalem to the old Babylon. Babylon, one of the former things that has passed away. Babylon, we know from its description in this book, was a code word for Rome, the capital of the empire, and and all its descended empires that have come since then, to be sure. At the time of this writing late 90s, approximately A.D., it was, Babylon was very much alive and well. Yet back in chapters 14 and then 18, the angel declares, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Why such confidence? It did not seem to be fallen at all. How could there be such confidence? Because of the cross? You see, Rome was judged at the cross. Babylon gave authority to Pilate and the religious rulers of the Jews who had submitted their authority to the empire and Herod, their puppet king of the Jews, all conspired together, we are told. Before them stood the innocent one. Not only the only truly innocent one that ever stood before them, perfectly innocent one that ever stood before them, but the ultimate innocent one who has identified with everyone who was unjustly judged. And what did they do? Crucified him. That's what you call a big fail. Right? Okay, we're going to cast judgment. We've got the purest innocent one in all of human history. In fact, the only one so purely innocent that he's without blemish. And what do they do? 
they give him the worst possible judgment, death by execution. But God raised him from the dead, which judges them and everything belonging to their order of things. Babylon has fallen. It was judged at the cross, and its eventual fall is inevitable. It's a bit like that story of the demoniac of uh, Gerasenes that I talked about last week. You know, they, don't make us go into the abyss. Okay, let us go into those pigs. Sure enough, go into the pigs. They go into the pigs. What do the pigs do? They run off and jump in the abyss. It was inevitable. The fall of Babylon is inevitable because the cross has laid it waste, has judged it. In the resurrection of Jesus from among the dead ones, the new creation began. He's the firstborn of the new creation. Now, just as confidently as it was declared that Babylon has fallen, it is declared that God is making all things new. And that the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God. But like the fall of Rome that was judged at the cross, the new Jerusalem, the new creation began at the resurrection and comes down out of heaven from God even now. You may recall, Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. New creation. Well, today we're going to explore our text under three questions. What is the new Jerusalem? When is the new Jerusalem? And how does the new Jerusalem come? So what, when, and how? What is the new Jerusalem? When is the new Jerusalem? And how does the new Jerusalem come? Let's begin under that first question, what is the new Jerusalem? And to understand what it is, I think we have to see it in contrast to Babylon. You've got the new Jerusalem, you've got the old Babylon that has fallen, and and, and then this book sets the two in quite a contrast. Now, the New Jerusalem is the capital city of God's kingdom, and it's God's answer to Babylon, the capital city of the earthly empire. It's the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of man. Its size, its square stadia, miles or kilometers, however you want to me- uh, measure it, but 12,000 stadia, It's about the same size as the entire Roman Empire in geography, you know, in in square miles, if you will. The entire Roman Empire with its vast expanse, which is to say that its size encompassed what was then the entire known world. Now, they wouldn't have called it the entire known world because that would presume that they knew there was an unknown world. (laughs) So it was just what they knew as the world. The whole world. And so, this city is massive. It covers, as it were, if not the whole universe, the verse. I mean, the the world, the cosmos, if you will. And in contrast to Babylon, Rome, here in parentheses, in all its earthly splendor, the new Jerusalem far exceeds it in glory. Regarding Babylon, we read that the woman, in in chapter 17, the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand. But in the New Jerusalem, instead of gold cups, the streets are paved with it, which is to say that what is of greatest value by Babylon's standards is used to pave the streets and for building material in the New Jerusalem. And then the walls are made of precious stones, as are the gates, which are apparently decorative rather than functional because they never close. Why? Because there is total peace. 
the capital of God's empire far surpasses in glory the capital of the earthly empire. Now, we have to remember that God can only communicate to us in human language, which is to say, He communicates in metaphors that we can comprehend about things which we could otherwise not comprehend. So when we read about the New Jerusalem and all these things, it's, it's using things we can understand to describe the unbelievable glory of what we could not even conceive if it weren't broken down into such baby talk for us. Okay? And so, don't think that when you get to heaven, you're going to have streets of gold, or the New Jerusalem has literal streets and gates and walls. It might or might not, but that's really very much beside the point. In fact, we'll find that it's quite impossible here momentarily, but I'll get to that in a moment. You can't think of this as a physical place. Because as we see in a moment, the city is also a woman, a bride, which turns out to be the wife of the lamb, who is actually not a literal lamb. And the woman, we know, is not a singular woman, but is the church made up of male and female, Jew and Gentile. It's us, yes, and so many more who have come before and after and around all over this city, all over this world. In contrast, Babylon is a harlot that lures into idolatry. This is The New Jerusalem is a bride, pure and spotless, that brings healing. It is a city and a garden at once, combining both aspects of what humans seek for peace, the primordial garden, which we usually seek by getting away from cities to a place that is, is, you know, uninhabited and in its more pristine glory, if you will. But then it's also represented by a place of security and prosperity in numbers, which is why cities begin or exist to begin with. The Lamb reigns as king in the New Jerusalem, while the beast reigns in Babylon. While the visions of Revelation are not chronological in order, and we've emphasized this, so for instance in chapter 12, just an example we've used throughout, you have the birth, uh, death, and resurrection of Jesus and ascension, all there in one chapter, but clearly before that you have things that occurred after that, and, and so there's not a chronology to the book of Revelation. And so that's important to keep in mind. But the earlier visions do often inform the latter visions. So there is a building that goes on layer upon layer so that there's a greater understanding as we go through these chapters. So, for instance, in chapter 7, we discover that in the end, Israel will be made up of people from every nation, tribe, language, and it'll be innumerable. But then through the middle of the visions, we discover, discover that the nations are aligned against God's people and have drunk the maddening wine of Babylon's adulteries. But then in chapter 20, last week, we find that Satan is no longer allowed to deceive the nations in total as uh, uh, he was prior to Christ's coming. But now the nations can receive light because of that. And so it follows in chapters 21 and 22 that the nations are walking by the light of the glory of God and of the Lamb. And unlike the ransacking, which has always been the lot of the old Jerusalem, while the nations go in and take the glory away from it, remove the, the golden uh, items from the temple and carry them off to Babylon. Well, that used to be the case. In this new Jerusalem, rather, what happens is that they bring their glory to it and lay it down at the Lamb's feet uh, there in the new Jerusalem. And they receive healing from the leaves of the tree of life, which is how the great multitude is formed. 
God's temple was the centerpiece in the old Jerusalem, and in the new Jerusalem, it's completely gone. There is no temple. Why? Because you don't need a symbol of God's presence when you have God himself dwelling among them. The sun and the moon, which provide the greater and lesser light to the old city, no longer shine in the new. Why? Because we can see clearly by the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. They show us the way. Absent from the new Jerusalem is anything that hinders community, whether death or sorrow or crying or pain, anything that wreaks havoc on the lives of that community, they are gone. Now before you get too stuck thinking the new Jerusalem is a place, keep in mind it's the bride, the wife of the lamb, Ephesians 5, the church. But we have to acknowledge that if that's the church, it might leave a few of us scratching our heads. Because anyone who knows the church, who has had any significant experience with the church, well, for them, this glorious description of the church is either shocking or they have spectacular faith. Because you wouldn't look at the church and think this. In a letter to her friend who was quite dissatisfied with the church, Flannery O'Connor wrote, quote, Christ was crucified on earth, and the church is crucified in time. And the church is crucified by all of us, by her members most particularly, because she is a church of sinners. Christ never said the church would be operated in a sinless or intelligent way. <laughs> uh, touche. So this leads to the question, when? We know what it is. It's ultimately the church, the people of God, described in this glorious fashion. But when? When is this version of the New Jerusalem to exist? In a, another place, um, on the lips of a character in one of her novels, Flannery O'Connor wrote this, All your dissatisfactions with the church seem to me to come from, a, from an incomplete understanding of sin. What you seem to demand is that the church put the kingdom of heaven on earth right now and here. That the Holy Ghost be translated at once into all flesh. Well, isn't that what we all want? I do. The kingdom of heaven on earth right now and here. However, it is not here in fullness yet. Peter informs us, that this is because God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The question of when cannot be answered with a point on a timeline. It must be answered on a continuum. A continuum often referred to in theological circles as the already, not yet. But I think even that has its own set of misunderstandings, and so I want to clarify that, as, as we walk through this today, the, the kingdom of Christ has come already. You know, in the Gospels, we have his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Jesus came declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. But it has not come fully. So in that sense, it is not yet. So there are a few ways we can understand this. And I've got some, sli some slides. So if we can put up that first one. This is what I'll call misconception number one of the already not yet. And, and, and you notice here on the left, Christ's first coming, the kingdom came. But it didn't come fully, so you've got this 
small amount of the kingdom, but it just kind of remains the same all the way through to the end. And then you've got Christ's second coming, where, presuming that's full all the way, it, and it goes on into eternity, you have the fullness of the kingdom. And that's generally how I first understood the already not yet, and I think that's more often than not how people understand the already not yet. But I think it's a misconception, uh, because it pictures the kingdom as static, and in this scenario, the kingdom doesn't really involve us other than we, maybe we're in it, but that's it. I mean, there's, there's no dynamic going on in that. It's static. A better concept, but still not quite right, would look like this second slide. So, like this. Christ came. He will come in fullness. But between now and then, according to this slide, it seems there's a progressive growing of the kingdom here on earth, you know. Your kingdom come, your kingdom come, and it increasingly does so. Now, I'd like that to be true, but my experience in world history would tell me that that's not, in fact, true. Okay? That that doesn't work out so well. Okay? Um, and I don't think Scripture would support it. So, and again, whatever diagram we throw up there is going to kind of break apart at some point. But I think a better diagram would look closer to this third one. Uh, which is something like that. Christ's first coming, the, the, the clouds above, that's heaven. You know, where Christ reigns in the clouds where we do not see him. And, and what you have in the green arrows is what comes down out of heaven. So the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven. God is making all things new. But it's dynamic. You see those pieces in pockets? Well, there'd be thousands and thousands of them in true life, but... But they represent the people of God who are crying out to God in prayer and longing for the kingdom to come and where he's answering that and giving a taste of the coming kingdom in the present. But it's, it ebbs and flows. There's no direct progression. It might be better at some time, but then later worse, depending on how we are engaging and calling on heaven for God's spirit to come and pour himself out on us, the church, that there might be heaven on earth. Your kingdom come, we cry. And God answers that prayer by giving His Spirit, as we're told in Luke's Gospel, um, chapter 11. So, I think this picture, and we'll talk more about it later, gets closer to what it actually looks like. And I know that looks like a mess, but actually living life like that is a bit of a mess too at times, so that's okay. Um, I mean, but you could picture, for instance, amongst those thousands of little peaks that would actually be there, Gulf Coast is one small peak, if you will, bringing down heaven's ways on earth as it is in heaven. And thousands more little expressions doing the same thing. And that's gospel witness. It's often missed that our text speaks of the new Jerusalem coming down out of, uh, from, from God, out of heaven from God, in the present tense. It will not just come one day, nor does it describe it as an all-at-once event. Verse 5 says, I am making everything new. The new Jerusalem, the holy city, is, in verse 10, coming down out of heaven from God, present tense. I also notice, despite everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life being thrown into the lake of fire at the end of chapter 20, here we are told that those people whose lives destroy peace and goodness will be consigned to the lake of fire, which is also called here the second death, just like in chapter 20. Well, how'd they get back out of the lake of fire only to be thrown in it again? If you take it chronologically, you've got a big problem. Like we threw them in, now we took them out, now we're going to throw them in again? Well, of course not, right? That's not, that's not what's going on. It's not chronological. 
We're, we're just seeing another way to look at it. Because there they had been thrown in, and now they will be thrown in, if you will. And then in chapter 22, verses 14 and 15, while we're invited to enter the gates of the holy city and access the tree of life, outside are the same group of people that are going to be assigned to the lake of fire at some point, but they're running around outside the city. So that surely can't be a city that only exists after they're thrown into a lake of fire. It must exist before. And that's why that diagram I had, I think, captures the, the picture more clearly. And, and the only way to bring it together is in some concept of the already, not yet. So when is the new creation coming down out of heaven? When do we li- uh, live in the new creation? Well, we live in it now. If anyone is in Christ, he's new creation. And not yet. You're on your way home from church today, you might end up in a conflict with your spouse or your kids. And you'll discover the not yet element real quickly. <laughs> but we are to live our lives seeking, yearning for, crying out for life on earth as it is in heaven. The author of Hebrews understood the nowness. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. The nowness <laughs> of the New Jerusalem. That author writes, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, you have come to the city of the living God. Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the new Jerusalem. How do we go there? We go there in our worship when we gather together. That's speaking of our corporate gathering. We go there in prayer when we we come before the throne of God, crying out to God together. What, What appears to be a rather mundane exercise on earth is in reality a tapping into this amazing city, this capital of the new creation, the new Jerusalem. What we do on Sunday mornings is far more spectacular than it otherwise appears. Because that's where we're going when we come to go, go to gather together. And that line, to the spirits of righteous, the righteous made perfect. They speak to a tension that has existed since the beginning of the church and can cause us to stumble if we're not careful. One might see this tension in the lives of two Russian novelists the two greatest Russian novelists, maybe two of the greatest novelists of all times, Leo Tolstoy and Theodore Dostoevsky. It it, it takes a while to learn how to pronounce that. Too many syllables or something. Anyway, Tolstoy, he reached for the stars. I love Tolstoy. He, He saw the possibilities of the Christian faith. He longed for real transformation on earth as it is in heaven. His exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom, of God, the kingdom of God is within you, it calls us to live the teachings of Jesus. I mean, I love the flavor of Tolstoy's tea, if you will. I mean, it's like, what, that's what I drink. That's what I long for. It, it is what inspired both Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. to accomplish what they did. So I, there's a lot that comes from what Tolstoy did. One cannot read Tolstoy and, find, and not find compassion for the poor welling up in them. And though he was 
a wealthy landowner. He walked and lived among the poor peasants on his land and decided that they had much richer lives than he. So at one point, he actually sold everything in obedience to Jesus that he had and gave it away and, and, and followed that. Yet his pursuit of holiness, of the kingdom of God, of living under Jesus as king, we might say, failed. His wife put, put it well in her diary one day, even if it's biased and inflamed in whatever moment she was in. There's still at least some truth, if not a lot of truth in it. And she writes, there is so little genuine warmth about him. His kindness does not come from his heart, but merely from his principles. His biographies will tell of how he helped the laborers to carry buckets of water, but no one will ever know that he never gave his wife a rest and never in all these 32 years gave his child a drink of water or spent five minutes by his bedside to give me a chance to rest a little from all my labors. Though I suspect the nevers, like nevers usually are, are at least slightly exaggerated. And what she thinks of that she knows of his heart is likely inaccurate, I think the point is valid. He was righteous, but clearly not yet made perfect, though seen by grace as such, as what he will be one day. But he too is a broken man. It goes back to what Flannery O'Connor said about not understanding the nature of sin. When we have too high of expectations. Many a person might have sought out Tolstoy's wisdom. He, he was a disciplined man and lived with purpose. No one, on the other hand, would have sought out Dostoevsky's uh, wisdom or advice. He, his life was a wreck. Much of his early writing was produced to pay off gambling debts. He had epilepsy. He lived a dark existence. Early in his life, he was arrested with a group of men accused of being treasonous by Tsar Nicholas I, who, wanting to impress on them the gravity of their error, after eight months of incarceration, sentenced them to death with no possibility of appeal. The firing squad was standing ready as the sentence was pronounced. They were robed in white burial cloaks, so as to save time after their death, I suppose. Their hands were bound behind them, and then they were paraded through the snow before a gawking crowd. A clerk pronounced, quote, The wages of sin is death to each one of them, and held out a cross to be kissed. They were tied to post and heard the the words, Ready! Aim! And at the very last moment, a man on a horse rides, as was planned, with a message from the czar that he had commuted their sentences to hard labor. One of the prisoners had a mental breakdown from which he never recovered. Dostoevsky, on the other hand, after looking death in the face, savored every drop of life. He understood grace in all its glory. While Tolstoy savored the high call of the gospel but didn't understand the nature of sin, Dostoevsky understood the nature of sin and embraced the full extent of grace. And we need to learn both. We need to learn both. Tolstoy likely viewed the presence of the kingdom more like the second slide, where it's just gradually getting better all the time. Dostoevsky likely more like the first, where it came, but there's barely any of it here. And we won't see a change until later, but we can't really do anything dynamic to change that, but we trust in grace. To embrace both concepts is to leave us with the third. If we live our lives knowing that grace is sufficient, 
but cease to long for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we've got cheap grace. If we live our lives striving to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven without recognizing how our hearts will never fully achieve it, without recognizing our utter dependence on grace, we will have little to no grace. Jesus' teaching presents absolute grace and an absolutely high calling to high ideals. Both at once. Absolute grace and an absolutely high calling to high ideals. So when is the new Jerusalem? Now and not yet. But it isn't static. It's dynamic. And that it is dynamic means that our engagement in the process is meaningful. How does the new Jerusalem come? And that's our final point. It's really application. You see, these chapters are not painting a pie-in-the-sky escapist dream, but a call to engagement here and now. God intends to make all things new, to transform creation, conforming the earthly experience to that of heaven. He, he intends to do so in covenant partnership with His people. The new Jerusalem's coming is not static, but dynamic. Throughout this book, we've seen prayers ascending to God. They arrive at the altar. They are mixed with fire, which likely represents the Spirit, and are sent back to the earth. God sends His Spirit to do His recreative work in answer to our prayer. Just as in Genesis, the the Spirit hovered over the waters and He was there to turn chaos into life at the bidding of the Father, He now comes in answer to our prayer and turns chaos into life again. Eugene Peterson, in his book on Revelation, which is called Reverse Thunder, for this very point, it's called Reverse Thunder, he wrote this, quote, While conflicts raged between good and evil, prayers went up from devout bands of first century Christians all over the Roman Empire. Massive engines of persecution and scorn were ranged against them. They had neither weapons nor votes. They had little money and no prestige. Why didn't they have mental breakdowns? Why didn't they cut and run? run? They prayed. It, It was in order to hear those prayers that there was silence in heaven. He mixed the prayers of the Christians with incense and combined them with fire from the altar. Then he put it all in the censer and threw it over heaven's ramparts. The censer, plummeting through the air, landed on earth. On impact were peals of thunder, voices, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake, Revelation 8, 5. The prayers, which had ascended, unremarked by the journalists of the day, returned with immense force. In George Herbert's phrase, as reversed thunder. Prayer re-enters history with incalculable effects. Our earth is shaken daily by it. Amen. To put it in the language of our two chapters today, chapters 21 and 22, prayer returns, bringing down the resources of heaven to make the earth new, coming down out of heaven. The Holy Spirit's outpouring is in answer to prayer is the means by which God is making everything new now and ultimately in fullness when He comes again. We see this in Acts chapter 4. You may recall after Peter and John were released from jail, when the disciples lifted their voices together in prayer to God, we read, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God Boldly. The place was shaken. An earthquake. 
came in response to prayer. Did anyone else feel it? Who knows? Did they understand it? Certainly not anyone else. But that's one of those earthquakes we read of in Revelation that is given in response as the censer is tossed to the earth. In John 12, Jesus uh, was praying with a troubled soul, it says, and the Father responded by a voice from heaven. But it says that most people just thought that it had thundered. Others may not see, hear, or feel anything in response to our prayers, but God will be at work in answer to the church calling out to Him. Amen? Why do we gather on Fifth Wednesday to pray as a church? Because God responds to prayer. God hears and answers prayer because that is the most necessary thing for all that we do. The rule of the king, that's Jesus, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is the answer to our prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The cry at the end of chapter 22, come, Lord Jesus, is not an exasperated, come and get us out of here, we can only hold up so much longer. No, it's the same prayer Jesus taught us, your kingdom come. Like that prayer, it is a cry for the kingdom to come now in our present need and to come in fullness at some future point. Come, Lord Jesus. The new Jerusalem is nothing other than the capital city of the kingdom, so its coming is the kingdom's coming. God gives His Spirit an answer to prayer, and the Spirit recreates. Let's look again at that third diagram. You see those green arrows, if we, if we might get that up there. I'll wait for it to get up there. There. Those green arrows coming down out of heaven, as I said earlier, those are the Holy Spirit coming in response to our prayer. And you'll notice that that green is beginning to shade in the blue of of those uh, uh, triangles, if you will, the peaks that are coming up. And eventually it's fully shaded in because as the Spirit impacts us, it transforms us um, into the likeness of Christ. Our calling is to prayer from this text in order that we can... Fulfill our calling to a spirit-empowered life, a life of Christ-likeness. But notice the promise. Notice the promise of the text. It's a glorious promise to all who respond. In 21, verse 6, John writes, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children." And then in chapter 22, verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say, come. We are the bride. We say, come. We invite people in to this city. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. You see, the gates are open to this new Jerusalem. The call goes out to all nations of the world, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gifts of the water of life. What glorious promises. What glorious promises. Amen? Amen. And what a calling that we've been given. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Help us to walk as your covenant partners. Help us to live rightly in this dynamic relationship of you making all things new, of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Lord, make it so in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.